Welcome to KGN News Morning Magazine. It's Monday, March 13th of 2023. I'm your host, Shannon Young. And we are in our spring fun drive here on listener-supported community radio. Coming up on the program, we'll be looking at how certain self-described conservative groups have set their sights on public schools and public libraries, and on education about overlooked and suppressed history in general. And CityCast Denver digs into the history of paleontology across the Front Range, from the bone rush to fossils found during modern developments. After the BBC News headlines, we'll hear the latest commentary from Jim Hightower. Then, Rosanna Longo Better hosts Storytellers of Color. At 9 a.m., we'll bring you Counterspin, a look at fairness and accuracy in reporting. Then, music director, music director Indra Raj will be in the Boulder studio at 9.30 for a fun drive special during the Morning Sound Alternative. We've got a great morning of programming lined up for you today, but first, the headlines with KGNU's Stacey Johnson. Boulder City Council instructed staff Thursday to draft an ordinance that would allow more unrelated people to live together. The increase would go from the current occupancy law limit of three to as many as five unrelated people in a single-family residence. After city officials gather public input on the proposed change, council members could vote on a new occupancy law as early as August. According to the Boulder Reporting Lab, the directive by the city council is part of a broader agenda to increase access to housing and to reduce costs. Council members are also considering changing the amount of accessory dwelling units that property owners can build in a neighborhood. Election denier and former state representative Dave Williams has been elected as the newest Colorado Republican Party chairperson. KGNU's Jack Armstrong has more. The Colorado GOP's Central Committee picked the pro-Trump election denier Dave Williams over six other candidates Saturday to take the helm of the state Republican Party. Williams, a former state representative, unsuccessfully ran in the Republican Party primary this past year. Williams' platform includes denying the results of the 2020 presidential election and promising to be a wartime leader for his party after his appointment as state party chairman. His selection comes in part through an endorsement by competitor and indicted former Mesa County clerk Tina Peters. Dave Williams has touted through his campaign that Colorado's Republican Party has only performed poorly due to not being aggressive enough. This would be in opposition to most polling data that suggests Colorado Republicans have a record low in registration and voter turnout. Nationally, election deniers have been selected for state party chair positions three other times this year in Kansas, Idaho, and Michigan. For KGNU, I'm Jack Armstrong. Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser announced Friday his office is collecting public comments on the proposed acquisition of Parkview Medical Center in Pueblo by UC Health. Weiser's office said in a press release the Attorney General will review the transaction as required by law to make sure there is no change in charitable purposes, that assets do not leave the state, and there are no reductions in the availability or accessibility of health care services. The Attorney General will also be reviewing the proposed acquisition under the Colorado Antitrust Act to make sure it does not create less competition or a monopoly. The public can submit comments or concerns to the Attorney General by March 31st or share feedback at a listening session in Pueblo on March 22nd. 
The Forest Service will invest more than a million dollars to support indigenous-based forest restoration and resiliency projects. KGNU's Juanita Hortado has more. The $1 million of federal money comes as part of a 2004 Tribal Forest Protection Act. The act looks for ways to include indigenous communities with forest restoration and resiliency projects through the reduction of dangerous fuels and reforestation of traditional plants, damaged prairie, and habitats. According to a Forest Service announcement, the collaboration will expand on cooperative work in many areas, including grassland bird and pronghorn research, wildfire management, livestock raising, fish habitat enhancement, site restoration for wildfire benefit, a cooperative conservation work crew, and noxious weed control. At least three Lakota tribes will take part in the initiative. For KGNU, I'm Juanita Hurtado. Security cameras from a Takano neighborhood show city council members Jackie Thomas, Jim Torini, Danny Long, and Catherine Whitman conversing and going door-to-door and possibly urging residents not to sign a recall petition against Thomas and Torini. Organizers launched the recall after the four city council members abruptly voted to fire Takano city manager A.J. Ucart last month without a reason. Organizers say they could not pull a recall petition for Long and Whitman since Long has served less than six months and Whitman's term expires in November. The Times Call reports Takano residents and fellow city council members have raised questions as to how the four went about firing Ucart since the action was not on the city council agenda. The group's canvas activities are also under scrutiny for open meeting law violations, as any meeting of a quorum or three or more members of any local public body must be open to the public at all times. Takano Chief of Police Matthew Skagg said he has received instructions from Mayor Adam Moorhead to conduct an investigation into possible procedural violations by the council members and has referred the request to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, who has agreed to move forward with the request. A group of federal lawmakers have formed a caucus aimed to develop policy and solutions to combat the surge in fentanyl overdoses. U.S. Representative Joe Neguse is co-chairing a bipartisan fentanyl prevention caucus, along with Democrat Madeline Dean of Pennsylvania and Republicans Daryl Issa and Ken Culvert of California. Fentanyl contributed to 912 overdose deaths in Colorado in 2021, the most recent year with complete data, according to Colorado Newsline. In 2020, 540 Coloradans died from the illicit drug. The caucus will prioritize education and working with awareness groups to help the public better understand dangers of fentanyl. Besides the co-chairs, 24 other congressional lawmakers are also part of the group, including Representative Doug Lamborn from Colorado Springs. For today's weather in the National Weather Service, the skies will be mostly sunny with a high near 56 for Denver and 53 degrees for Boulder and Fort Collins. Today's winds will be light and variable. For tonight, skies will be partly cloudy with a low of 26 degrees for Fort Collins and 31 degrees for Denver and Boulder. For KGNU, I'm Stacy Johnson. You are listening to The Morning Magazine on KGNU. I'm your host, Shannon Young. Since the height of the pandemic, some ideologically right-wing groups have started honing in on school boards and running campaigns to remove books from library shelves. 
One local researcher who has been covering this push is Claire Woodcock. She joins me live in the studio today. Good morning, Claire. Good morning, Shannon. So thank you for being here on our fun drive edition (laughs) of The Morning Magazine. Uh, Listeners, again, if you'd like to call in, that's 303-449-4885. I would be remiss not to mention that. Or go online to kgnu.org. But first, let's jump into this interview. I wanted to ask... If it's just a perception that ideologically right-wing groups are running more intense pressure campaigns targeting school boards and libraries in the last couple of years, or if it's just that there's more media attention on them. I think there's definitely more media attention, but I think you wish that it was only a perception, to be honest. I think that um, these some of these groups have become very well organized, and in that organization, it has allowed them to uh, pinpoint weaknesses and really wear down uh, uh, educators and librarians uh, with a lot of this uh, disinformation that's going around about what is available to students in or um, uh, uh, children in uh, school and public libraries. You recently authored a story in the Boulder Weekly about a group called Moms for Liberty, a group that has just recently arrived in our area but is present in other states around the country. What's the story there? Yeah, so they were based, they started started out of Florida. Um, it's a national 501c4 uh, nonprofit, and they have um, developed chapters across all of the, or um, more chapters across different states and in different counties. And, you know, um, they are uh, really effective at getting um, uh, members of their chapters elected to school boards across the country. And with that, we've seen a lot of um, book, the, a lot of those schools be targeted uh, in book ban uh, crises. And uh, with that, with that challenge, we've seen a disproportionate number of books about LGBTQ identity or by LGBTQ authors and um, other groups that are basically not white straight men. And this is coming as the state of Colorado had the state legislature a few years ago had voted to approve the adoption of more inclusive social studies standards. So you have this pushback at the same time. And, you know, you mentioned that this group is primarily out of Florida. Florida has banned AP African-American studies, uh, as well as there's the famous don't say gay bill. So is it safe to say that there are areas of the country that have become testing grounds for these rather extreme ideological battles whose tactics are then exported to other states. Yeah, so I would say it kind of seems to me like every time something happens in Florida, it happens in Texas a couple days later. (laughs) That's what seems to come up in the news. But we're seeing a lot of things in Tennessee. We're seeing a lot of challenges in um, Oklahoma and um, Arkansas, um, though um, in addition to, yeah, some of these uh, really southern states. So, it, you know, it was, it was surprising for me to look at the Moms for Liberty website at their at their map with all of the different counties that light up and see Boulder County lit up. Mm-hmm. So as journalists, we're often told to follow the money. Do these various groups have funders in common or, or do funders bankroll various organizations given the appearance of a 
groundswell of grassroots support, you know, otherwise known as astroturfing? Yeah, I mean, I can't speak to it too, too much. I know that um, they receive money from a conservative group uh, called Conservatives from Good Government. That's a right wing wing uh, Florida political action committee. Um, and I think that there are a number of things um, like that. I've also heard, but am not able to confirm at this time, that they do receive money from the Koch Foundation. So, yeah. Uh, and on a personal opinion level, why do you think so much focus is now on zeroing in on public libraries and public schools? That's a great question. Um, I think that, you know, during the pandemic, when a lot of um, students were home and um, a lot of parents took on the really um, the challenging uh, aspects of remote learning and to help help their students or help their kids, you know, just get through this really difficult time. They saw some of the things in the curriculums that maybe they hadn't uh, had access to being able to see in the past. And they they thought, what are my kids learning? Um, I think it's interesting that we're asking that question now. I mean, we could have been asking that question before, but, you know, at the same time, there's a lot of really good things that have been added into curriculums that are great for diversity and for education around diversity. And I think that um, I think it's kind of a, a reaction to a lot of turbulence that had been going on in the last couple of years and a, and a direct uh, response to, you know, some of these um, uh, uh, some some of these initiatives that have been pushed through in schools. So connect these dots for me. I mean, you have <clears throat> curricula that's in a school, so you know students have to go to school. But there's also public libraries, and th- those are completely optional. But public libraries are also under attack in a way that university libraries are not necessarily. What is the the common denominator between public educate or public schools and public libraries? So. It's, it's interesting. You have a lot of um, authors, like famous authors, that will say like, oh, well, if uh, books are being banned in your school libraries, they can also go to you. You can just go to your public library and find it there. That's not always necessarily the case. I think that the there is this... Uh, this idea that you can, if you can get it out of schools and you can get it out of public libraries, it becomes less accessible for people. And that's um, taking away an ability to possibly, like not everyone can afford to buy the books on Amazon. Not everyone can go to their local bookstore. Not every local bookstore might have the those books, um, but they probably do. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that there's this element of just get it out, get these books out of and anywhere that is that a child could get it, we've seen books that um, across the country that have been just uh, uh, like LGBTQ themed books that have been taken and put on shelves like behind counters that student like children can't reach, and it's it's just it's just a really it's a really weird and interesting time to be a reporter on the library beat. Claire Woodcock, a reporter on the library beat, also a researcher on libraries. And we are in our spring fund drive, so we got to bring it back to asking for money. I'm here with Sam Fuqua, who actually has some great insight into libraries and public education. Oh, well, the only thing, I, the one thing I was thinking as I was listening to uh, your conversation with Claire Woodcock is well, A, of course, I think libraries are, public libraries are one of the great ideas humans have ever had, the, the idea of a free <laughs> public library. Um, and that means, uh, what one one thing that means to me is a multiplicity of ideas and information. 
I'm sure if I went to the Boulder Public Library today or any public library in this country, I would find books uh, with ideas that I disagree with strongly in, in some cases. But I still want those books to be on the shelf. So uh, when I hear about a group like, what was it, Moms for Liberty? Moms for Liberty, yeah. Is, yeah. Um, that want to restrict access to uh, to books in the public library, I think that's, you know, that's a an inappropriate response, you know, clearly. And, and I, I know that that there's, that there's books in the library that maybe I would rather people not read or ideas that I perhaps, uh, find abhorrent, but I support their right to be there. So it's, it's a, it's a, a fundamental contradiction between the role of public libraries, uh, when we say, we're going to pick and choose uh, what books are on the shelves in those libraries. Well, for me, the the through line is is public education, access to information, and I think that that also goes to KGNU and what we do here. I don't agree with everything that's said on KGNU either, but I do believe that it should be available for people to consider. And uh, you know, we were talking with the mics closed earlier, Sam. Uh, you. You have you were on the BVSD school board for many years. You were also uh, a commissioner of the library commission as yeah, well. Yeah. And you were also station manager, news director, all that at KGNU. Yeah. And I was, you know, we were teasing about like, well, what's the, the gateway into all of this? <laughs> and one of it is, of course, volunteer time. But I also think it has to do with uh, public education. Yeah. Because we are uh, engaged in public education here at KGNU. You know, it doesn't <laughs> education doesn't stop at the 12th grade. It doesn't stop at whenever you decide to stop it or when you uh, have gotten your degree. Education is a lifelong journey. And we want to be here with you as you do that. I think that's right. And, you know, it's easy to take these things for granted. Uh, free public education, free public libraries, free uh, independent media. Um, but I feel lucky to have had all those things in my life and that my kids had those things. And so we have to give back in whatever way we we can. And I think what we're trying to do this morning is ask people to give back a little bit of money, you know. And, and so when you – I understand that some people listening don't have a lot of money to give. But uh, think about what, what you can afford. And even a few dollars will help us this morning. Uh, we'll put it to good use. We'll, we'll open the microphones to – Excellent independent journalists like Claire Woodcock will open the microphones to members of the community to share their opinions, their expertise, and we will uh, give you beautiful music from all over the planet every day. That's what we'll do with your money. So give us a little bit right now at 303-449-4885, and don't take this resource for granted. 303-449-4885 or pledge online at kgnu.org, and you will help us get it done for, for KGNU and I think very directly you help the entire community when you help KGNU, just as we uh, invest in public schools, even though we may not, maybe our kids are long gone from the public schools like mine, maybe our kids are teeny and aren't in the public schools yet, maybe we don't have kids, but we all have to invest in that public resource, as I believe we do in our public libraries and this independent media institution that has been here for uh, 45 years because of because of that investment by individuals. And unlike public schools and public libraries, uh, the 
KGNU is not the result of attacks. That's <laughs> we right. do There's, depend on yeah, you. Yeah. And we do want to thank Patricia who called in from Boulder. She says, I love KGNU and appreciate it. Also like the 7 a.m. news on weekdays. She's taking a 45th anniversary mug. So won't you join her? Those mugs are available at the 88.5 level. The 88.5, like our FM frequency. Now, I, I know that you're going to call up 303-449-4885 as soon as I start this next segment or go online. It's really quick and easy at kgnu.org. First, I want to thank Claire Woodcock for joining us this morning. Thank you, Claire. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. And uh, we're going to move on to uh, CityCast Denver. This is something that we have on uh, every Monday. All of the dinosaurs, Coloradans, have a special connection to the Stegosaurus. So much so that in February, state lawmakers introduced a bill to create a new license plate honoring the 1876 discovery of the ancient armored herbivore. But that's not the only reason why our state and the Front Range in particular has had a huge impact on the discovery and study of dinosaurs globally. CityCast Denver host Bree Davies sits down with Dinosaur Ridge's Aaron LeCount, one of Colorado's foremost dinosaur educators, to unearth the story of the Bone Rush and explain how Morrison became one of the most important sites for dino lovers everywhere. State lawmakers are debating a proposal to create a new Stegosaurus license plate that Colorado drivers could put on their cars. Can you talk more about the Stegosaurus and its importance to Colorado? Sure. Stegosaurus, uh, again, is our state fossil. It was named our state fossil put into to actual official legislation by Governor Lamb back in 1982. And it was really championed by an elementary school teacher at McElwain Elementary in Denver. She's a fourth grade teacher. Her name is Ruth Sato. And this, she got the, the backing of her fourth grade students. And they put in this proposal and did little research projects. And they went to Governor Lamb to put in that Colorado needed a state fossil. And they recommended Stegosaurus because of where it was found just outside of Denver. And that would be at Dinosaur Ridge in some of the layers that were first explored for Colorado dinosaurs all the way back in 1876. Let's go back to then. Can you talk to me more about what was going on in 1876 why were we digging for dinosaurs? Yeah, dinosaurs were still a very new thing in 1876. Uh, they were studied across Europe, of course, and across other parts of the world and Eastern North America. And American paleontology was, just, was really coming into its heyday. It hadn't quite made its way out west yet, past Kansas, starting to come into Colorado, starting to come into parts of Wyoming. Uh, but there were local geologists here, especially here in, in Golden City at that time. It was called Golden City, Colorado and, and Denver City, Colorado. And um, mining as an industry through the 1850s and 60s, right, you have the gold rush coming into Colorado. And it's always said in the 1870s is when the bone rush happened. So you have surveyors, geological surveyors were the ones that were finding fossils across Colorado. And they were reporting them to these prominent American paleontologists. And our local uh, geology, um, min probably mineral expert, uh, he was also a writer and he was an artist at the time he was teaching art and drawing classes and English ever at Jarvis Hall. And he was working with a lot of geological surveyors because he would do mapping for them and illustrating the different formations and the layers and, and the mineral structures for them. Well, he was doing some measuring on Dinosaur Ridge in probably March of 1876 and stumbled across dinosaur bones. 
on Dino- on what would become Dinosaur Ridge, the back end of Dinosaur Ridge close to Red Rocks Park. So he reached out to Oath Neil Charles Marsh over in uh, the East Coast, over in Connecticut, over at Yale Peabody Museum, Yale College. And uh, he eventually, a year later, was hired by Marsh to work in Morrison um, after making several more discoveries and and sending him letter upon letter of, look at all these cool things I found. Uh, Come come look at my shinies and tell me if you want to buy them. I need money. I'm a teacher. So not much has changed in that arena since 1876, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, that kind of was the kickstart that, that really made those American paleontologists look to Colorado as a source of fossils that they had been finding all across the United States. Fast forward to present day, I'm thinking about there's folks around Denver who have stumbled upon dinosaur bones like now. And I think I'm pretty sure that they found some fossils when they were building Coors Field a couple decades ago. Am I crazy or does this just happen a lot here? You know, you're not crazy. It does happen a lot here. Colorado is one and i'm super biased because i live here right of course i'm gonna be like colorado's the best state of course i'm gonna say that but the uniqueness of what we find in colorado is thanks to the geology the uplift of the mountains that happened about 75 million years ago started uplifting that tilted the rock layers that that buried other rock layers through erosion and rivers depositing stuff and moving stuff is the reason that we find as much as we do here. Uh, the reason that we can be in the middle of Denver, you know, building a new baseball stadium and stumble across the bones of a triceratops just under home plate, uh, or what we think is, a, is probably a triceratops, a horned dinosaur that was there. So that's how you end up with Dinger. <laughs> oh, good call. Now we have the mascot of the triceratops is Dinger because we found horned dinosaur bones when they were building the stadium, they were building the public building uh, for fire and police in Thornton and stumbled across the Taurosaurus, which is another horned dinosaur, a very close cousin of Triceratops. And it's the most complete one that anyone has ever seen. And it's you can go see it at the Denver Museum. It's it's an amazing specimen. So this has been happening for hundreds of years, probably thousands of years uh, with the with the with the peoples living here and it's going to continue to happen. And it's just the coolest place because we get that, that extra chance to be able to see a little slice of everything um, with the geology and then the cool stuff that we find in those rocks. So folks can come to Dinosaur Ridge today and see this tomb of Stegosaurus, right? Correct. Uh, Yeah, we're open seven days a week. We run guided programs every day. Uh, We have audio tours. We have new interpretive signs. We have family field guides. Uh, We have a lot of ways to come and explore Dinosaur Ridge. So if you're thinking, I want someone to tell me about everything, we've got our our bus tours. We've got our shuttle tours with, with trained guides that love teaching about our old our old dead things and the rocks that house them but we also um you know you can go up on your own it's open you can walk up we're under jefferson county open space land they they're the land owners but that means sun up to sundown you can come out hike it it's a it's a paved closed portion of a road easy to get to stroller friendly pet friendly uh with leashes and cleaning up after them and it's just a great it's a great way to go explore the past because, like I said, we're 30 minutes outside of Denver and it's an experience that that putting your hand in a footprint of a dinosaur that's 100 million years old is, is one of the coolest things you can do. Well, Aaron LeCount, thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me.
that's all the time we have for today's Morning Magazine. I've been your host, Shannon Young. I want to thank Stacy Johnson, Jack Armstrong, Juanito Hurtado, Sam Fuqua, Claire Woodcock, CityCast Denver, everybody. Oh, Patricia, who called in and donated. Thank you very much. We're going to blow past the BBC and get straight to Hightower. And after that is Storytellers of Color with Rosanna Longo Better. <laughs>